You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Wonderful, wonderful panelists. 
Um, if you want to, you can take notes, but just so you know, there is a podcast which will be on our website, on Google Play, and in the Apple Store. So can take notes, but there also will be a podcast later. All right, so on with it. So our first question is to ask Dr. B. Do you need a writing coach for this editor or professional reader? Um, I think it depends very much on who the you and the question is here. Um, uh, because um, in what your sort of intentions are with, with your work, um, I know folks who've used all three, but in general, um, the, the thing that I found most helpful in my work is a strong team of um, workshop partners or sometimes called beta readers. Um, so I'm part of a writing group based in DC called the Speculative Wordsmiths, and just, you know, four to eight of us, depending on any given meeting, and having that kind of peer review has been the most helpful feedback for me as far as uh, finding the, the spots I don't see in my own work or pointing out where a plot isn't working out as well as it should be. I think uh, I, I agree about critique, critique partners. If you if you can find other people who are maybe on the same level as you want to trade, uh, I think you learn a lot both in the critiquing others and in being critiqued. Like I've found it up my game a lot just to to be able to critique others uh, and, and figure out what works and what doesn't. Uh, in terms of in terms of those particular things, I think if you are self-publishing, which is something that I haven't done, so I don't want to speak too much to that uh, for, for fear of overstepping, I do think that if, if that's the path you're taking, it is a good idea often to pay an editor. Uh, the same as if you're, not, if you're not a person who's good at cover design, you should pay, you should pay the cover designer. There are certain investments in your work that if you're self-publishing, I think will probably pay off in the end, one of which is definitely having someone who, who isn't a friend who can take a, uh, a look at, at your work uh, critically without worrying about it hurting your feelings. I think that's, that's worth it. And there's different kinds of editors too. There's, there's editors whose job is just to find the typos, and there are editors who do more of a um, uh, uh, content look at things. So, so knowing which kind of editor you want is also useful. Yeah, I think for me, the ultimate goal that I recommend to people, and it does differ depending on your specific career goals and trajectories, but um, like for me, community-based, um, did I lose it? No. For me, uh, community-based um, feedback and critique um, is sort of like the ultimate goal because I think it's important to find your way into uh, writing community that works for you as like science fiction um, or romance writers or uh, horror or something like that um, um, because now I trade um, with my friends if we're doing a short story we want critique um, or uh, help each other out with different like research aspects things like that um, but not everyone is just like, you know, born into communities so um, like I do have friends who work as writing coaches and often the people who approach them uh, are just getting into writing and not really sure where to go and they want a professional author 
uh, who has like, taken these steps before to sort of like set them along the path. Um, it's really important to sort of research um, folks before you hire them, look with the other authors and editors and presses they've worked with, um, look at a little bit of their prose, see if it's a quality style that like, appeals to you. Um, I definitely have friends who are readers, but they, I mean, don't pay them. Um, my friend Alexander, the audience just started out with for me on my um, uh, So, you know, that's sort of like, uh, you know, having a group of friends in a community that you trust to build reputation, you know, is like solid. Like working with them, I really feel like is sort of an end goal. But I think when you're getting into it, it's totally valid to check out a bunch of different venues. Yeah, I think um, just to you know, echo what some people have already said here, you know, it depends on your past publishing. Um, but it doesn't just apply to people at the beginning of their careers. Um, didn't George R. Martin have people who were outsourcing his mistakes when his last book was going to come out? So, I mean, and, and I don't think you can probably get too much bigger than that in genre writing. Um, one thing I might add also, um, I forgot to mention, I'm also serving as the Vice President of the Diverse Writers and Artists of Speculative Fiction, which is a group based in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, one thing that's been a big issue for us is advising people on finding uh, diversity readers, um, people who are catching something you might be blind to when you're writing outside of your culture or uh, whatever group you're part of. Um, that's another thing that you might want to look into if you're, if you're working with that kind of material um, at pretty much every stage of your career. Um, but hopefully you have some good readers who are also good to your friends who you're also reading their material and uh, you have that support group to, to fall back on. I think that's pretty much it for me. Uh, I, I want to add, if you are a science fiction or fantasy writer in Baltimore, there's actually a really great resource as people talk about community, which is uh, at the Baltimore Science Fiction Society, uh, which has a building on uh, Eastern Ave in Highland Town. They have, a, they have a critique group that's free and open to the public uh, twice a month. It's two Thursdays a month. And, and that's, a, that's a place where a lot of people have developed community. Um, there's a reading series that's come out of that, and a whole bunch of uh, writers who've made their first sales of stories and novels have come out of that critique group, which does short stories, but also people have found community to, to look at larger works. So, so there are things like that. You can always take a, a, a local class also and find someone else whose work you like in class and say, hey, do you want to trade work after this class ends? Um, and that kind of thing, if you're looking. I mean, you can talk in, in the audience afterward and say, hey, do you want to you know, trade some work? Well, um, sorry, just to add on to that real quick. I forgot, I did bring a bunch of flyers for the Baltimore Science Society. They're out there on the table. They're green uh, pages. You can just take them and have all the information for the group and their events, and also for all time, which is coming up next year. Okay, I know most of you got the flyer. We also have a, a writing critique circle here at Pratt, the first Sunday of every month. Now, it is open to all genres and types of writing, um, so you probably want to, if you see somebody there who you think is 
on the same level as you and you think is in the same genre, you might want to ask them personally, but um, in general, we do have a general receipt circle. So, now on to the next question. What are some of the top mistakes new writers make when genre writing? Um, I'll start with you, John. Okay. Um, well, in my experience as ever, one thing I find uh, that people who are new to genre writing uh, over a lot of times is the fact that um, what makes something genre is that you're, you know, adding some speculative development. And that speculative development is going to affect the world, the character, the, the society they're from, and people tend to not follow their own internal logic a lot of times when they're starting out. Um, because they don't think about all the ramifications of um, what one or more thing they've changed in the world, what impact they'll have. Uh, there's usually some sort of ripple effect that you get to the point in the story and say, oh, wait a minute, but if things are like this, then why is this happening? So that has been probably the most common thing I've seen. I think it's really hard to just like skip the top mistakes because when you're a new writer, you just sort of have to like dive in and go full throttle anyway, and almost everyone goes through sort of like an Olympian writing phase, even if they like uh, have good taste and it's just sort of like inevitable to wade through them. So when I think of the mistakes that, um, you know, air quotes like mistakes, I don't know that I think of them as mistakes, but the things that I sort of didn't do uh, fully for myself when I started writing was. One, I paid too much attention to what I thought genre conventions were and what standard writing rules are. You can get so inside your head things about like, show no tell. It's good advice, but also if you take it too literally, like can sort of like kill your prose because you're thinking, oh my gosh, should I show this or did I tell every line? And then you've just like turned in circles and you haven't gotten anywhere. So like for me, um, part of it is, um, is you know listening to yourself and like writing um, style that like feels true to you, and then like sort of developing that like through you know upping your craft, but like sort of like staying true to what you want to write. And like part of that also is, <coughs> pardon me, like the content. Um, like I, uh, we're all adults in the room. Um, I write a lot of sex in my books. And um, I didn't think that was really a thing I could do with science fiction because I didn't write a lot of it. And especially since it's queer, and like in my first book I ever wrote, it was like a slow burn, like between two guys and they kiss at the end. It was not great. Like it showed in the writing because I clearly wanted to be writing something different than that. I didn't listen to myself. I let myself get wrapped up in like what I thought were the genre conventions. And as soon as I let that go, my writing was so much better. Um, and I think the other thing I would say, um, and then I'll cap it there, is um, you already, I would say think about people, um, character, um, people say write what you know, it very often means, um, you know, I fish my memories, I fish details of random things that happen to me and, and people that I know. I think about the way I think in my head, I think about how I talk to people. And so much of that sort of like honesty, um, really makes a difference in your fiction. And sometimes I feel like people think I'm writing a book, my prose must sound like this, but it doesn't have to. 
So yeah, it's kind of hard to think of these backwards. You'd say, well, what are the mistakes? So I guess uh, I would say that it's a mistake not to read in the genre you're writing. So, so to turn that around, you don't need to read stuff you don't like. Most genres have a wide range of stuff that's going on in them, but, but knowing some of those conventions so you know whether you're going with the convention or whether you're going to deliberately break it. Uh, in, in science fiction fantasy, that doesn't mean you have to read uh, you know, swords and sorcery stuff or space opera. That isn't your thing. But you know, there's literary science fiction, and there's high fantasy and low fantasy, and, and all kinds of. And there's different magazines looking for different things. So you can, and, and the same for everything. You know, there's there's Amish romance, and there's uh, you know queer romance, and there there's there's so many different subgenres of everything. Just read what other people are, are writing because those are going to be your peers. Uh, that, that was so. So that the mistake was the other side of that. Um, I would say I forgot the other two. I had three things, and I had three fingers up, and that usually works. Um, what was the last thing you said? Yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop there and tell everyone what my other two were. Well, you took one of mine, just to read within your, your genre. Um, which still intersects with what Kellen was saying about don't be bound by the conventions, but if you don't know what the conventions are, it's, it's challenging to, to break them. Um, the other one I was just thinking was, as editors, you don't read the guidelines. Um, many folks submit things to me that are, are drastically different from what I've said that I'm looking for. I just had a, a novella call that was open for a month, and someone sent me a, like an illustrated middle grade children's book. It was meant to be like speculative novellas, and it's just, regardless of how good that was going to be, she was never going to get anything from me except a rejection. So um, there was there was no gain for her there. Um, and similarly, a piece I think would be related to rejections. Um, I actually reject many things that I otherwise really love, but they don't quite work with the rest of the table of contents, or they don't, um, maybe it's too similar to something else that I've just decided to publish. So the fact that it's garnering rejection doesn't mean that the, the piece isn't a great piece, or that there's not a, a core to it that's really valuable. Because um, I've seen a lot of folks really take those rejections to heart. And, Having been on the other side of the table, it really helps minimize that reaction because it's not a dismissal of your work or work or your worth. It's just it doesn't work for that editor or that project. The one of the other two that I was I was trying to think of was going to be don't uh, to, to turn it into a mistake. I think a lot of people say, oh, I'm really bad at that, therefore I don't write that. You know, action scenes or endings or whatever it is that you feel like gives you trouble and in my opinion the answer isn't actually then don't write that if you want to it's write that a lot work through it you know figure out how to do it by writing 20 different action scenes or 20 different sex scenes or whatever it is. you know it's part of the beauty in my opinion of short fiction is that you get to practice beginnings middles and ends in totally different voices without committing to an entire novel length thing. So you can write, you know, a 2,000 word story exploring second person, even though you've never written in second person before, and see if you like it or not. 
and then you can just ditch that and write another story. And um, so, so the answer was, was don't give up. And the third one I was going to say was uh, don't sell yourself short. A lot of I, I've heard advice on panels before where people will say that the, the way you, you start selling is you look at the, the low-level magazines first. So if you're looking to write short fiction or if you're looking to publish with a, a big publisher or whatever it is that's your goal, aim high, start at the top, go for your favorite, like the agent that you most want, go for the magazine you most want to see your name in. And you'll get the rejection, and rejections are okay. They mean you're, you're submitting work and, and hopefully you'll get there someday, but you, you have to get those rejections. Uh, so, so aim high. I really like that you were like, if you're bad at endings, <laughs> And then you just don't write them. <laughs> you have to write an ending to write a story. Oh, you don't say that though. You have to say, oh, you know, I'm really bad at ending stories. So I just leave them all half finished and never publish them. And that's how last you can publish on a writer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was actually really funny. Uh, so the next one is probably going to be shorter answers, but <laughs> I have them that they, I write really don't think you have to have. But let's listen to that. So I'll start with Sarah this time. If you want to teach writing, it's a good idea to get an MFA. If you want to write for a living, or write for part of your living, or just see your work in print, you don't need an MFA. What, what it gives you is a teaching credential or possibly dedicated time to write, which some people do need, but you are paying for that time to write. Uh, there was a time in my life where, where I was agonizing over it and trying to figure out if I wanted to go back to school. And then I realized actually what I wanted to do was just write and needed to give myself permission to spend that time writing. And for me, that worked out. Um, so, so it's up to you and what your goals are. What's Harrison? Yes. I agree. Um, I'm in a unique position because uh, although I do not have an MFA, I somehow got involved Like, but I thought I would want to go into academia, and it was a very interesting topic to me. 
and I had gone there and like just started started writing on the side and realizing that's what I want to do with my life. So those things were like sometimes you know degrees are expensive. I just finished paying my student loans, so like do I want any more effort? No. But you know if you want to go to school for writing and work with professionals and like take the time to do it. But that doesn't mean any. It doesn't necessarily help in like very specific ways to become a published author. Yeah, and I'd like to add that although I did publish a lot of people at Sino University, uh, it wasn't because they had an MFA. A lot of authors in publishing, they don't have MFAs. Uh, some of them are established authors, dozens of books, some are brand new authors. As a publisher, to me, it just matters about the quality of work and if I can work with the author. Traditional publishing, you don't need 
I can talk a little about this. I'll hit this on that. So if you don't need an agent to be published, um, it's a different path. Um, it is not the path that I personally chose, so I'll let someone else speak to that. Uh, okay, as, as a publisher, I work with both agented and unagented submissions. Um, and, you know, I've had good experiences and bad experiences with, with both. Um, as author, I've found more published without an agent. Um, very early in my career, I did have a scam agent, which is something I'll watch out for. Um, that all the money that they're paying should be coming from making deals, not from you paying for office supplies or paying for them to get into meetings at conferences and things like that. So, if you find an agent, avoid those agents. Um, but um, as, as you point out, uh, your reading book might be in the bio, the back of the book, or the front of the book, the original page. I think when you're looking for that information, the agency might be mentioned. Um, or you can just online and you know, just do a search for, for the agent of that book, um, if you look for the title. Um, you can usually find a specific agent within the agency. Um, there are you know, directories and listings that say you know, what agents are out there and whether they're open submissions or not. You can also go to um, their regional uh, writers' events, like the Maryland Writers Association has a uh, yearly event, and they usually have some of those agents there who you can meet. Uh, you can do who you pitch to. Um, also, other events like um, CircuitCon or some other genre-specific events will have uh, agents featured. Um, Seymour University's program has a event that's open to the public every year called the Inner Right Mind, and they always have two guest editors there. Um, so, and there are, of course, specific pitch fests in Miami, like in New York City and in LA, that are geared just towards matching well with the agent. You don't need an agent for short fiction at all, unless you're, unless you're trying to get into the New Yorker. Like, the New Yorker says that they have open submissions, but, but it's easier to an agent. Every other magazine, if, you, if your goal is to write short fiction, you don't need an agent for that, is the first thing I want to say. Uh, the second thing I want to say is, um, in terms of scam agents, one important thing to know, first of all, there's an organization that they sh your agent should belong to. There's like an association of agents. Um, I'm blanking on what it's called. But, uh, association of Authors Representation. Yeah. Yeah, so most, most legit agents should be a member of that. But the main thing to know is you don't pay your agent. If there's someone who's claiming to be an agent uh, who wants you to give them money, that is going to be a scam. The way agents get paid is they sell your work. And when they sell your work, they get, it's usually 15%. If they're asking for any money before that stage, that's not the person you want to work with. Uh, so, so that's an important thing to know. Uh, and then the other, the other aspect of how to get an agent that I think wasn't, wasn't mentioned is, is the, the traditional path, and it, like you can identify which ones you're interested in. Uh, you should also uh, learn to write a query letter, which is a letter that's going to explain like, your, your pitch to the agent, uh, introducing yourself and introducing your book very briefly. And there's all kinds of websites. Uh, query Shark is a good one. Um, 
in terms of learning what, what to do and what not to do in that query letter. And query letters can take like months to write, like it's, it's a valuable skill in itself. Uh, so there's a query letter and then there's usually also, uh, they'll probably ask you for a synopsis. So, so being able to, to write a synopsis of your book is another skill that you can kind of learn and develop. And you can even, if you have boutique partners, you can trade that off as well. Like Helen, Helen guided me through the whole synopsis process because I had no clue how to do that. So, so find, find a person or find a book that can get you through that. There is an agent's, uh, an agent's market book as well if you're not online, um, which the library probably has, and if not, uh, big bookstores will have also. And the only points I had, I think, are um, one tool that can be helpful for tracking queries as well is um, Duotrope. Um, it's similar to the submission grinder if you do short story submissions, but they also do agent submissions. Um, and uh, also, it might be helpful to check out, um, they have these uh, maybe semi-annual events on Twitter called um, PitMad and DVPit and these other um, events where folks do really short um, pitches essentially for their books and then agents, um, there's like a, all different competitions and different ways the agent indicate if they're interested, but it can be maybe a less intimidating first um, interaction with Charles or Hatton that way, if that was of interest to you. I do want to add real quick, one thing is that not all agents do belong to the Association of Authors Representation um, because they have very specific guidelines that they have to meet. And like agenting, like writing, is a hustle in the beginning. They only make 15% of what they sell your work. So when you're starting, you might not have a salary, which means you might have another job on the side, which means et cetera, et cetera. So and like I know a new agency that recently started, um, Laura Seth and Eric Kane, their new agency, they were like, we don't belong because we disagree with one of the stipulations like that you have to hit like on a moral level. They just didn't agree with it. So like <laughs> you don't have to get an agent news from there. And also the thing about querying is that it's very much like dating, like in an unromantic way. Like um, you said that you it's important to find an agent that like vibes well with you, so to say. Um, like my agent and I are very similar in um, personality, and you don't have to do this. Like you don't have to be the same person as your agent. Um, I'm not somebody who likes to be micromanaged, so I did not pick an agent that was going to like control every aspect of my career. Not that like, an agent works for you, right? So, so that would be a thing that I would look for. Some people want that. Some people want an agent that says like, I don't like any of these ideas. Can you get me something new? I want an agent that says. Great, I love your idea. Let's figure out which one works best. Like, because I want to write what I want to write. I don't want to write what you tell me to write. Um, and if I like, feel passionate about finishing a specific book, I want you to help me make that book its best incarnation and identify where we can, like, which editors to sell it to and stuff. Um, and then, like, different editors, different agents, like, network in different circles. And the agency is important because, like, my agent just moved agencies, and when your agent does that, you can go with the agent or you can stay. And so I work with her, and the new agency is like, it's, it's wildly more well-equipped than the previous agency, was, agency that she was at. We were talking about marketing, marketing and publicity and commercial culture, 
And I was dissatisfied with some aspects of it. And I told her, and she was like, let me talk with the people in my agency who do this. And they had a whole discussion, and they came up with all this information. And I'm like, great, now let's go back to the publisher. And we have like, armed with all this information that we didn't have before. And um, just, you know, when you have a partner like that, you know, the agent is important. Um, but I would rather, almost always rather be with like an agent that was at an established agency where they had all, uh, agents that could act as mentors for the agent um, and have lots of connections because that's what being an agent is all about. Alright, thank you guys. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to go too much into this next question, but I'll give you guys a chance to answer anyway. How do you pitch your books to an agent or editor? That easy to answer? Well, I was going to talk a little bit just now about how to, how to do it for an editor or for an agent. Um, I want to add for short fiction, you, uh, you don't need to pitch. You just need uh, read their, whatever magazine it is, read their guidelines online, and usually what they want is to see the story. Uh, some of them have guidelines for how to write a, a cover letter also, but at the end of the day, all you need your cover letter to say is, I'm sending you the story, this is the name of it, this is how many words it is, and that's, thank you for your consideration, and that's the cover letter. Um, and, that, and then they want to read the story, they don't want you to pitch the story, so that's where it works up to like 15 or 17,000 words usually. For um, the only piece I'd say to this is, um, so the anthology that I put out through Mesa Press, I've got some copies outside, but it's called, it's called Broken Metropolis, and that came because I just sent a the press an email saying, um, I, you know, I'd like to do this book, do you want to help me put it together? Um, and just because um, a friend of mine had put out a poetry book with him maybe a few months prior, um, it was very informal and, and I was there to do a book. So um, similarly when I was at an event at Renema's a few months ago, someone was talking about a concept they had for um, a book of essays. And, found myself saying, like, yeah, send it to me for, since now that I'm putting out um, my own book. So some of that, that editing process, like if you have some kind of a, a project, it can be quite informal with small presses and, and organic in a way that's pretty interesting. I think that that's true also. Like, pitching is a thing that's best done, like, as it happens casually in the wild. Like, right? So there's editors and agents will like sort of tell horror stories of people who like walked up to them at the bar and convention was like, I want to tell you about my book. And they're like, I'm drinking lots of wine and talking to my client. I don't want to hear about your book right now. Um, that's like the best way to get your book rejected. Um, but like anytime I've ever pitched something uh, to an editor, like I have, um, like I had a novella that was published that was longer than the submission guidelines allowed me to submit through their portal, and I had just been at a convention, and um, I was kind of groaning about this, and the editor of this magazine was there, and he was like, oh, well, what's it about? And I had like a line, I was like, it's about X, Y, and Z, and I said, that's too long, and he said, well, um, just email it to me, like, and I could not have submitted that there otherwise, and also if I walked up to him and said, hey, Michael, I want to pitch you on my story, he might have been like turned off by that. Um, but because it was part of the conversation that we were having, and it evolved naturally, he was the one who put forward interest, just like Dave said, oh, that piqued my interest and it made me want to extend the offer of submission. So like, um, I would advise that 
you either, it's best to go through the formal channels, like a query letter or a submission um, to a, a small press or an editor like that, or like if it happens to be brought up by the editor or agent in the wild, it's always good to have like that one sentence in the back of your brain just in case. Well, yeah, I would add that um, it's good to be known, you know, on the radar when you're doing things, uh, to be at the places where the editors and agents are, um, so that, not so that you can take advantage of it, but so they are familiar with who you are. So, just like you said, when an agent leaves an agency, they can take the clients with them, right? Sometimes editors leave publishing houses to start new business, and usually they want to hit the ground running, and they want to ask the authors, you know, like, hey, who do you know who has something that's good and ready to go? And so you need to be ready to pitch at amongst those, whether it's in person at a convention, whether it's through email, um, it's just coming all formats. I know uh, when I was the uh, editor guest at Penrose Conference, which is a yearly conference in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Writers Association, and they had us doing pitches all day long in like five or six different formats. Uh, you mentioned dating. We did speed dating. And I remember I was at phone tables, and they had like one minute going from table to table, agent to agent to editor. Uh, we did like uh, American Idol style thing where they were pitching to us, but we all turned away from them. <laughs> and we raised our hand if we were interested in what we were saying. I just remember people remember some face to face pitches, right? And so they just sort of the very manuscript and asking next to us. Um, and you know, traditional pitch sessions, all sorts of things, um, group pitch sessions. Um, I will note that if you're doing uh, nonfiction about like a particular movie or author or some study of uh, science fiction in the 1950s or whatever, if you're doing nonfiction, uh, usually what is expected is you will pitch with Nothing really written except for maybe an um, outline, a very detailed outline of a book. Um, so in that way it differs and, uh, from the you know, stereotypical fiction process. All right, thank you guys for answering that. Um, I think I'll start with Dave this time. We, um, we kind of went over a little bit about conscious seminars and workshops. So the main part of the question I would like you to answer was, um, should it be dedicated to a specific genre, or does it matter if it's just the general writing workshop or concept? Um, certainly for craft or writing, I mean, working with people who are aware of the genre is really important. Um, some of the mix, I'm missing mixed spaces, but what I mean is spaces where also doing writing have been really valuable for me. And that sometimes is a matter less about genre because it's more being around writers and folks who are sort of invigorating you to, to get work done. And, and then the genre matters less. But for being a craft talk or synopsis talk, having people that are kind of speaking the same language could be really helpful. I think it depends on what your goal is for that event. Like if your goal is to meet people and make community, or if your goal is to you know, get to know some agents or see them in action or to learn from other writers. You know, there, there are different types of 
conventions and conferences and workshops for all of those things. Um, I have personally found a lot of different types valuable. I haven't paid to go, I never paid to go to a writing conference where you had to pay for pitch sessions. That, that always felt a little funny to me. Um, but paying to go to a convention where you get to sort of be in, or, or a workshop, or a retreat, those are all things that can be very valuable if, if you're if you're into that and and set goals for yourself on you know what 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 you want to get out of it. Yeah, I mean I agree with what both of them have said so far, and also it's funny because I listen to um, a number of publishing podcasts, and there are several that have agents as hosts, and someone sent in a question recently that was like, um, you know, there's these ten minute pitch sessions. I don't really want to, uh, I don't really know what to do with that time, can I just ask the agent to review my query letter for me? And the agents were like, this is actually probably one of the best uses of a pitch session that I've heard because they're offered for everyone. A pitch does not take 10 minutes, it takes at most, it should take like 30 seconds. And then after that, like a natural conversation, I assume I've never done this, but like just from what I've heard from agents, like natural conversation will like, be brought up and um, that sort of thing. Like, um, if you had 10 minutes with, with an agent, it might be more productive if they helped you uh, with your query letter so that you can query even more agents. Um, but I, I go to genre-specific um, conventions. Um, I mean, it's always nice to have a good refresher. Like, we have the Hallmark Book Festival every year, and we're put uh, science fiction and fantasy writers of America, or put near the romance writers of America. We're friends with them. It's nice to cross-pollinate. Um, you know, you get to see other types of literature. It's always good to cross over, but um, usually, you know, you have to pay to go to a convention. Like, there's an attendance fee, which is not the same as, like, registering to pitch to someone. But, like, for example, Balticon, which is down here, and Cat Clay, which is in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, those are, like, sort of fan-style conventions where you pay to attend and listen to panels like these, but uh, with content, like, geared towards books not just publishing, and there's also different workshops and um, conventions like, uh, for example, the Nebula Awards Conference, which is my favorite, which is very like, business-geared. Um, I, when I go to those conventions, like it's an investment. If it costs $100, $200 to attend, I want to have fun, and I want to make friends, and I want to build a community, but I also like usually want to meet some editors who I might want to work with, or get to know a couple agents and I see what they're like in person before I decide to work with them and stuff like that. So it is a good idea um, to sort of like look at who's attending and um, genre specific that can really help you advance your career. Uh, I would say whatever you're doing, if you're going all in and doing um, to involve your writing career, uh, it'll be beneficial. A lot of authors and counter talk about conventions in terms of vacations and what have you, and they walk away dissatisfied because they didn't really do the business stuff that they needed to do. They were mostly just hanging out, um, which is good for you know building or maintaining relationships. But in the end, they don't have much to show for it. Um, so yes, definitely um, attend any kind of genre-specific event. Um, also. I'd say also go to the larger industry um, events dedicated to uh, the genres like I mentioned, the Nebulas. Um, even though they're expensive and usually they all traveling around the country. And even 
point to things that are like the ALN Commission, the American Library Association, or um, you know, any, any of the, the larger, broader things that cover the, the industry as a whole. They're expensive, you have to travel, they're usually the most expensive parts of most expensive cities. Um, because organizations are expected to be paying for their individual members to go. But, you know, you can be on the ground uh, interacting with librarians, uh, acquisition librarians might have you, you know, um, seeing what people actually want, what they need, um, and what they feel about the books that are being made by the companies that you're hoping to publish with, or that you are publishing with. Um, so, and usually, um, so like a book, uh, the book expo and what have you. The genre-specific organizations like um, um, Science Fiction Writers Association and the uh, Horror Association will often maintain tables for these, uh, these events um, that you can drop into um, for a reduced reduce rate to be able to have that experience if you can make it. At the end of the day, though, the most important thing is just, are you writing? Like, none of these, these are all things that it's cool to go to. You do get to make connections, but if you can't afford any of that, and what you can afford is to come to panels like this and Baltimore Book Festival, which is also free, and um, and then write. Write, just write and write and write. Take books out of the library on writing it, or on publishing. The advice is out there, and you don't necessarily need these things in order to succeed. And just to mention again, the writers round table for Sunday. Yeah, it'll be helpful. And um, also, gosh, don't have that. I was going to say, so go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, like, I go to conventions because I think they're fun. Lots of people don't. Um, but, like, you know, I'm a, like, writing can be a very solitary event. And it's almost like having like a big slumber party with all your friends in a hotel. Um, and you can stay up late and like have some drinks if you drink and like talk about all your favorite books and what you're working on. And like that just, there are moments you cannot recreate that like happen in these spaces. But you absolutely don't have to do that because you can have communities um, local. There's lots of um, really cool free events in the area that everyone has mentioned. Um, and the writing has to be there at the end of the day, like Sarah said. You know, if I had managed to pitch that story to the editor and it wasn't good, then they wouldn't publish it. It doesn't matter if I pitch it. <laughs> oh, yes, and um, the idea of just writing. Um, we are also, not, it's not set in stone yet, but we will be having a shut up and write. Um, I'm not sure what the time is going to be. We're thinking lunchtime. Um, so we're hoping people in this area could come. Um, where you just come with your laptop and a paper, and for that hour, you just write. You could probably have a little bit of socializing at the end, but you just come here, have a space, have a time, and just write. All right, so the next question. Um, we talked about this a little bit. Um, so let's see, I think I changed it. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this one is how to market to a wider audience. I ask this because everybody wants a lot of people to read their books. Do you just want it to be genre readers or do you want it to be a wide audience? So what do you guys think? Oh, I just, I mean, I just literally was talking about this with my agent, so I do have sort of an answer. And that is, um, I think it depends on, I, the, the framing of the question is, is not, um, I think, 
right? So there are books that are going to do very well within genre. And when you say like just versus wider, I mean like it's a deep readership for science fiction and fantasy. Like you can be wildly successful writing things that are totally conventionally genre, marketing in genre. I don't think that like um, marketing outside of that makes it better or like more. It might mean there's like a thinner range of people in all the genres that are interested in your work if you're doing crossover work. Um, if you're writing short fiction for a magazine, those magazines often have readership already. Um, if you are writing a novel for a traditionally published, like, um, big, big publisher, like, um, so I sort of consider my books to be like crossover mainstream, um, accessible by people who don't just read science fiction fantasy. And like the answer there is really like your marketer and publicists like have to send it to venues that have general readership. Like, do you just want your book to appear on like the science fiction blog promotions, or do you want it to be like sent to like Bustle, Optioner, Variety? Um, all these online magazines where like lots of people pick it up, not necessarily within your genre. And that might not work if your book is like hardcore spaceships. Like, and that's okay because there are publications that highlight books that are about hardcore spaceships. Um, so I don't think it's better or worse. It's not sort of like a one version is wider than the other, but like, I mean, if you want to market to many you know, what's going to sell you the most books? Will you make more money marketing within science fiction or fantasy, or will you make more money um, sort of like marketing across? And it totally depends on whether your book is like wider, accessible, like the content. Some of it has to do with culture. So if you're self publishing, then it'll it'll depend on where you where you position it on Amazon, what categories you choose, and what your cover looks like. If you're working with a publisher. The publisher will make some of those decisions and will work with them to say you approve the, the cover or you don't. Uh, and, and then some of it is the categories that are on the back of the book. I had to check just now, and mine says fiction slash science fiction. So, so I've, uh, some some bookstores put this in the fiction section, and some people put it in science fiction. And the cover doesn't look like one or the other particularly. There's, there is no spaceship, even though there's you know, a spaceship in one story. Um, this, one, this one looks like it could be uh, literary fiction as a genre, or it looks like it could be a rock memoir, which is why it says on it, a novel. Like sometimes they put a novel, and you're like, why did they put that? Of course it's a novel, it's in the fiction section. But it, it looks like it could be, you know, like, like Kim Beale's uh, memoir or something like that. So they put that on there, and then on the back it says what, what section they want it to be in, and it still sometimes migrates to other sections. So, so part of it has to do with just where it's marketed. Your marketing, because you had to write up for that book on Paste Magazine, which I don't think of as a genre magazine either, so I thought it was interested. Like, your, the way that they targeted your readership was also for music fans, which seems like it worked really well. Uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, a lot of it comes down to the meta that you were saying about how things are categorized. Um, we're, you know, of course, in a much better position than we were 20 years ago in terms of um, not just people reading cross-genres and cross-genre works being acceptable, um, so people are building up audiences in, in multiple places, but just discoverability um, with 
the, the building to add tags to things, add um, all sorts of codes and what have you, also um, influencing how you show up online just by what words you put into your book description, what, what ends up being the keywords. Um, and that just sort of controls, you know, largely how people are followed to your website, hopefully you have a website or some kind of presence on social media, um, where people want to see there, because that could be just as important as your book cover in terms of people bouncing out of your site or sticking around and saying, hmm, this is kind of interesting. Um, another thing is how you can target, um, if, if you have a weird fantasy set in Raleigh, North Carolina, you can target North Carolina media outlets and other stores and all sorts of things that would normally be outside of the urban fantasy leadership um, or with something set here in Baltimore or what have you. Um, it's a sort of all involved sort of Washington. Um, there are all kinds of ways to draw people in to uh, the world that you created. Um, yes, I was thinking about that. They sent you, like, um, when I signed my uh, contract, they sent me a thing, it was a big questionnaire, and said, where's everywhere you've ever lived? Because we want to know where we can promote you as a local author. And I was like, universities that I went to, and stuff like that, where's your book set? Uh, if it's set like on Earth somewhere, and also when Sarah picked up her book, I was thinking about um, blurbs are a form of marketing <laughs> or publicity. Sorry, publicity you don't pay for marketing you do. That's the difference that I've been nailed into my head a thousand times, even though I get it wrong constantly. But like for example, you look at the back of this book, and if you looked at the front, you were like, oh, is this literary fiction? Or maybe I see a Kelly Link on here and a blurb, and then I look at the back and I see Anne Leckie, who has like a big hardcore submission model up. Um, and so you're like, oh, this is where we're in a science fiction territory. Like, that's the thing that can really um, help the reader sort of like see my favorite author blurb this book. Um, and if you are trying to get people to talk about your book, um, you know, uh, this is part of the thing that like a publisher will or should do for you, um, but that you can also be involved in, which is sort of like when you have that like advanced copy, you know, who you make a list of who you want to send it to to ask for a blurb. And those people will probably post about it on social media or they'll send you back a nice quote that you can put on the cover uh, or your promotional materials. And who's reading your book, like, who's reading the advanced copies of your book is a big signal of, I think my audience crosses over with these authors' audiences. Um, so it's, it's not about being to sort of like keep in mind, like, um, well, this is fun, you know, while you're working on your book, think, ooh, which authors that I like know and love, um, who like are, <coughs> are successful, like what I want to ask for a blurb when it gets to the right point in time in the publishing process, so. Just last piece, I just, I was looking, I got an advanced reader's copy of Malka Older's um, Another Disasters. It's another Mesodar Press title. I just finished it on the train up here. And of course, like right inside, there's a blurb from Sarah Pinsker. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the, uh, you do make connections between you know, who you read, and um, it helps to you know, put that sort of literary community on your sleeve. Um, very successful as a specific type of genre writer. Um, 
would you, if you ever switched to a different type of writing, like literary fiction or just a different genre, do publishers ever see you as that specific type of genre writer, or did you do you see where there's room for crossover? I'm not in a position to have this problem, but um, <laughs> I think we've seen um, folks are really successful in one genre, and sometimes we'll write under another name to make it clear that they're starting a new brand. And if you're so held up by your success that it might be a challenge, then you have a situation with J.K. Rowling, right? Rowling, that was it, right? But uh, so literally not telling people that this other big name is you because you're afraid it might mess with your brand. But to be honest, it just seems like a really good problem to have. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think some people do adjust to, to make divisions. Like if they write, uh, sexy novels and they also write children's novels, then they may make a division, or if they write horror and, and okay. young adult or children's books or something. Sometimes it can be, it can be useful just so you don't confuse your audience. So that I know a lot of writers who have two names and it's public that they wrote people like, um, well, like, like B.E. Schwab versus Victoria Schwab. Right. It's not hugely different. You know that that's the same person. And, and so some of them, some of them, you know, like Shauna McGuire writes science fiction, and then Mira Grant writes more of like a horror thriller thing, and it's the same person, and it says so in her Twitter bio. Um, but she just knows that, there, that the audience won't cross over per perfectly. So if you just want to pay attention to the one, you can. You know, you won't be sold a horror book under Sean McGuire's name if, if horror is your thing. I also think, um, so for me, like, there are certain things I always want to write about. Like, no matter sort of what genre I would be put on a bookshelf, like, there's always going to be gay characters, and there's always going to be explicit sex in it. And, like, those are things that are inherent to, like, my, what I like to write, my writing style. And it's really, like, um, you can sort of slide. Like if you're a person who is like, I write science fiction fantasy, consider myself an SFF writer, I assume my stuff will be put on those bookshelves. But like it's also sort of marketed as like kind of like a mainstream commercial piece of work that's approachable. And like or I decide to like sort of slide that way more, or if I were to like slide into YA, I would just like change some of it. Like I would stop, you know, writing the sex exactly the same way. Um, but like I would still sort of be like, um, I would still be putting out like the same types of characters. Um, I'd really like to explore social situations in my work, so like that would be a thing that'd be easily identifiable. I'd probably just like slightly change my pen name, but like I feel like you have like these sort of you know, we're all sort of like the circle, you know those mind maps where like you have different things that are off? I feel like you're, you're the mind map and like there are things that are about you that you're like, that you enjoy writing and they're little um, sort of sticks that go off that and you can like branch into science fiction and fantasy that way and like that can lead into your horror fiction a little bit and that can lead into your YA a little bit like because we are really diverse when it comes down to like the things we like to write, most of us I think. Um, I would say myself and uh, other people who came into the scene at the same time and took the same approach I did. Um, I wrote in all the genres all along, being published in anthologies and magazines and what have you, um, doing horror, fantasy, uh, humor, um, doing articles and what have you, uh, poetry and fiction. Um, and so I 
since I did that right from the beginning, I can easily go back and forth between those and have readers who want to see that work for me. Um, I think if I went to a publisher and said, hey, I read this great children's book, they might look at some other things I've done and say, oh no. <laughs> so that might be kind of tough. Um, at the same time, I am not being able to pull momentum in any one particular area the way my peers who just focus on one thing did, and now they're getting movie deals and stuff, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, at the same time, um, I have seen, um, you know, I have plenty of friends who have done the pen name thing and been successful um, doing, you know, a weird rock on Kindle or whatever under a pen name, uh, or just doing like, um, you know, nonfiction books under a pen name and getting good deals there. I've also seen publishers use it as an excuse to um, kind of browbeat you into more of a beginner's contract saying your numbers aren't good enough in this area if you're coming to this publishing company. You have to start over and under a pen name so that you're not associated with those, those sales that aren't tourist hunters. And when really, you know, looking at the publishers involved, that probably isn't accurate. Um, so keep your list out of you, hopefully. You have an agent. When I saw that happening, that person did not have an agent. So, um, you know, everything is hierarchy and under your goals and um, just trying to, you know, people who are scrupulous. I would like to add that pen names are a way that you can start over if you feel like things have not gone the way you wanted them. Um, if, for example, you were really excited to sell an amazing writing fantasy trilogy and <clears throat> The numbers just weren't there, and you know, it's official with your next book. The offers were not what you hoped for, were non existent. You can reinvent yourself. Uh, you can choose a pen name, and you know, sort of, you can keep going on the same path, and that's really what you want to do. But you know, you can also like say, okay, maybe I should have been writing adult fantasy the whole time, and then you know, we just do a pen name similar to that, and it's like you have a clean slate. Um, that's not perfect every time. I mean, People can usually Google these kinds of things, but like for the readership, it is new most of the time. So like, um, you know, it is sort of like, when all the hope is gone, you can become another person and try again. All right, thank you guys. Let's go to the next question. I'm gonna skip a few, so I'll have more time for a Q&A thing. So we'll, um, I'm gonna ask this one, and I'm gonna word it a little bit differently. So instead of do you have to, should you stick to a poem when writing certain genres, for example, history or romance, if you guys know? Yeah, some subgenres, some genres you do really have to stick to the formula, um, especially like in romance. Um, I'm so sorry that my friend is sitting on against not your head, like she just talked to me the other day and was like, I've read this romance novel at the end. The woman like just decided that she didn't need the man and she was happy for herself. And that's cool, but that's not romance. <laughs> um, so, you know, and that was a disappointment because what people are looking for in specific genres are specific like fulfillments. And you know, I've just said like a hundred times, like you shouldn't feel totally bound by convention, you should feel free to explore yourself. And my work certainly does cross over and do things that's not always super popular in science fiction and fantasy, but like if you're getting into it and you've learned the conventions, like, in the, I don't know history, but I would assume that because it is a very specific genre, that, like, 
people want crime, and then they want to solve the crime. <laughs> uh, I can imagine that was a very different region. So I think uh, there are some more uniformly way than others. Does anyone watch The Good Place? There, there was there was an episode recently where at the where someone wrote a novel and had a really really bad clearly a really bad novel but um he, he, the people reading it said and the mystery is solved within the first ten pages like he just tells you who did it and he says oh I know who did it and then there's two hundred more pages uh, you know so so I think there's certain there's certain aspects of of formula to certain genres as as Kellen said. Uh, some genres have a wider range than others. Like, I wouldn't say that there is a formula for science fiction or fantasy, but there are there are certain conventions within subgenres, which is which is basically what he said. You are done. And then you can break them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just thinking about how uh, I don't know if you all have had this happen, but sometimes you read. Uh, like the first genre book from someone who previously had only read, written literary fiction, and you're like, oh, like no one told you that this is a bad idea, because they'll do something that like would be like a really uh, would would be read as amateurish genre circles. But um, I'm thinking about um, ah, this is the worst. It's the one about the ghost, the the lovely bones, mm. right? And um, there's a few things there that that writer just it just ignores genre conventions in a way that like. Because she builds the world a certain way, and then she breaks the way she builds the world um, in a way that it's just like it's not like a purposeful, um, unreliable narrator. It just comes across as um, amateurish convention writing. Um, and similarly, I think with mysteries, if, um, if the way that the some some mysteries the the clues all need to be there for the reader to pick up on them, others it has to be such that the investigator is figuring out in a particular way. And like my mom reads mysteries and she'll tell me if the book did it wrong and she'll throw across the room that was stupid. Or, so you just, you have those readers, same as the ones who want to have the after a romance that they're reading it for them too. They're, they're engaging with the conventions. And um, if you're not doing that in a way that's clever, then they're gonna be annoyed. So you'd be more, um, successful probably positioning yourself outside of that genre rather than within it. And I think if you're breaking it, doing it consciously is part of the thing. If you're breaking it, you need to know why you're breaking it. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, yeah, so, you know, we probably all had this experience. You know, you're in a movie theater, you see a trailer for a movie, and it's pretty cool, right? And next time you see the trailer, you don't recognize it. It's uh, like a comedy angle this time, but last time it was like a horror thing. And then the next time you see the trailer, it looks like a romance. When you finally see the movie, it is like, you know, a somber, you know, historical study of, you know, whatever. And you're wondering, you know, who is this movie really for, right? Like, you can't sell somebody a Humvee and they open the door and all of a sudden there's a motorcycle with a Humvee shell around it. They have to know what you're getting. People are spending money or over time on this. So if you are breaking the conventions, you can do that, but there should be some clue up front. People should know that this is a mystery about a, you know, a woman in trouble, but I guess you know, that's not going to follow the standard path. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the public standards, um, to 
packaging of the final product, um, even as subtleties like the cover art. Um, so yeah, there are people who want something different, and there are people who definitely don't, or even the people who want something different, every once in a while, they just want to read the same old thing. So just bring people along with you, let them know what you're getting. Something we talk about at like the high ending level a lot is what promises are you making your reader and are you keeping them? So when you set up the premise of your book, and it doesn't have to be like, someone died, it's gonna be solved. It's sort of like, okay, these are the these are the plot threads and like the character pieces and this is the style in which I am writing. And you can see that all in the first chapter. Like, is that going to follow through? Are you gonna make good on that? There's a really good resource for, for those kind of promises, for learning how to make a promise to your reader early on, which I know that, the, that this library carries, which is uh, Beginnings, Middles, and Ends by Nancy Kress. It's, it was put out by Writer's Digest a few years ago, but it's absolutely in the library system. Beginnings, Middles, and Ends. Really, really good craft book. There was uh, some research from the big five year cultures um, that basically indicated, in terms of book buying habits, people are intrigued by the cover art, which will then make them read the back cover text, which will then get them to read the opening paragraphs of the book, and by then they know whether or not they want the book. So, somewhere in that first page, if it's not on the back cover, if it's not on the front cover, somewhere in that first page, it needs to be something that will clue you on to. This is going to be the same old thing that you might be expecting. Just think of like messages. I mean, Callum and I were talking on the side about a recent book that came out that seemed like it was um, going to be exploring secret histories of colleges and societies. But in many ways, it's like a police procedural. And I love police procedurals, so I was into this book, but it ruined Callum's day. Um, and similarly, like I am never allowed to choose another movie for my in laws because I took them to see. Young adult with Charlize Theron, thinking that it was a funny comedy, and it's actually this cringy drama. And so you just really lose people's trust and not worth that. The thing I was thinking when we were talking about the marketing was uh, sorry to bother you, because because all of the trailers for that were, were comedy, like the, you know this guy is looking for a job and he uses uh, and he discovers that he he can uh, sell more at this uh, phone job when he uses his white voice instead of his black voice and uh, and that was everything that was in the marketing and then and then the movie takes some wild turns it was not the movie that you thought you were walking into uh, so, so yeah if you saw that movie that's a really good example of that all right so we have a few more one more question. We're going to have a few more, but I'm going to cut two of them so we have more time for you guys to ask your own questions as well as peruse the, um, the tables out front. Some for free stuff and some for sale. We can talk to the authors. So, um, the last question. After the book deal, this is just if you're going to a publisher, um, what should you expect the contract? The contract is the book deal, uh, but you should, if you have an agent, your agent will also go over it, and your agent's job is to push back on bad parts of the contract. If you're working with a small press, or if you don't have an agent, or if you're working on short fiction, 
read the contract and get familiar with contract language, uh, there are certain things that, that are going to, they're going to try to get more rights away from you, and you're going to try to keep more rights. And some things you'll be able to argue over, and some things you won't. Uh, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, SIFWA, SFWA.org, has a section that's public-facing on their website called Model Contracts. And if you look at those model contracts, it explains what every clause in, in a contract, and it has one for short fiction, one for, for long fiction, one for agents, uh, it explains what those clauses are, are asking of you. And you can decide that a contract is a conversation. There are some things that are going to be hard to know, that, that they're not going to budge on, but you can always ask. And it's not, if they really want the book, it's not going to tank the deal to ask questions, and it's not going to take the deal to try to negotiate something. The worst that happens is they say no, and you have to decide whether it's still worth doing. There's very little that you can control in publishing. You can write the best book you can, you can revise it. Um, but I'm somebody who likes to be in control of a lot of things in my career. Um, so part of what I did was I listened to a lot of um, these are free podcasts that are put on by agents most of the time. So my agent and her friend um, do a podcast called Shipping and Handling. And there's another podcast by two agents called Print Run. And they discuss contracts, they discuss what a lot of these terms mean. And I learned a lot of that in such that like, when I had a book deal that was like pending, which is to say the contract like was being gone over, my agent was explaining something. I said, I know what that means because I heard on your podcast last week, and she's like, oh, this is so good, educating authors. Because like your the thing is that your my agent like sat down with me and I asked her to go through the whole contract with me. My first book contract was short, but most are like actually like thirty pages. Um, so we didn't do that for the next one. But I read through it. I also work in a law firm as my day job. I'm a paralegal. And it doesn't mean that I like have insight into IP or intellectual, whatever. I don't know what kind of law it's called, intellectual property contracts, because I just have this litigation. Um, but but I, I have learned like, through short fiction contracts and just through like listening to podcasts and paying attention to publishing and talking to other authors and reading them simple model contracts, um, I learned what a lot of terms mean and I've been able to say like, okay, like they they won't take they won't give us this deal if we don't give them audio rights. I really love audiobooks. And I think that they're a good money maker. They're one of the biggest like rising forms of fiction that people take in. Like, I want them to use this right if they buy it. So can we make sure this is a sunset clause? And the sunset clause is the thing that like expires if they don't get use it in a certain amount of time. So like I only knew that because I sort of picked up this language um, through interacting like with the community and the industry. And so I mean, my agent might have like suggested something like that, but she doesn't know what my priorities are. We like don't talk about them. So um, yeah, I mean, Sarah's right. The book deal is the contract, and you should read it over. And if you don't understand things, always mark them down. If you have an agent, go over them with your agent in plain language. And if you don't have an agent, find a friend. Um, I have a friend that I work with. She's young. She's in her twenties. She writes romance. She doesn't have a lot of friends that are her age that she's like comfortable having these uh, conversations with. And when she got a contract to sign with her agent, 
I sell things for you because I've read multiple agency contracts at this point and I can point out you should ask a question about this. You should see why they want you to do this. This amount looks higher to me. You should ask why. Um, and like Sarah said, you know, it's a conversation. So often an explanation works. Um, just remember everything with contracts and book deals, it's all about negotiation or it should be. Um, and usually the further down you go from the top of the food chain, the more flexible companies will be with what they can offer or provide or what price they'll let you keep. Um, and if you have uh, a problem with a certain clause, but you're you know, okay with everything else and really want to work with the company, you know, usually you can look at other contracts you had that you were happy with and say, okay, well, in this contract, the clause went like this. We do something about that, and like, we've done that with our contracts. Um, uh, we've been very happy to get the better and improved clauses from other people's contracts to make ours stronger. Um, a couple things you want to watch out for, you know, you want to ensure that loyalty reporting is, um, you know, built into the contract and enforceable. Um, there should be some call dates for publication uh, that's not met. The book isn't out at a certain time. You can um, notify the publisher in writing and get your rights back. Um, all sorts of things like that. Uh, what happens when there are remainders? What happens to those? Um, and definitely, one thing to watch out for is the word notwithstanding. Because that means that everything that came before that clause is going out the window. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and outstanding is uh, a big one on trial for it. Doesn't always mean something bad. It just means that maybe there's some circumstances under which the previous things in the clause will not be able to be met. These are the circumstances. Or sometimes you're on a fence of something else. You know, just keep your lips open. So, real quick, harken back to like tying agents with this kind of thing. Like, like I said, it's almost always better to be signed with an agent who's in a like an established agency. That's because lots of these agencies have what are called boilerplate contracts in with different publishers already. So they'll say like there are there's a history of this agency already having negotiated a specific number of terms um, with this publisher. So like when I sign my third book with uh, my publisher, like my um, my agent said, you know, our agency already has a boilerplate with them, which means there are good terms built in, like they have history. She doesn't have to renegotiate them every time. My contract took four months extra because they had to renegotiate the whole boilerplate over my book. <laughs> yeah, contracts took a long time. I think that my book actually sold really, really surprisingly and for like it unnecessarily fast. And then after that, it was months of me just being like, can we announce this yet? And you can't because you're waiting for the contract to go through because your agent's sitting there like crossing the T's and dotting the I's. Yeah, I think Dave wants to say something. Oh, just, oh, just a small point. Dave has more experience with most contracts than I do. The key that I was going to say is with small presses, um, don't be afraid to negotiate because the things that are important to you, they might not know that they are. And a lot of the presses I know will do different deals. Like if, if it's more important to you to have more copies to hand sell rather than having higher royalties, you just just let, let them know what you're thinking about and they'll work with you usually. I want to add one thing, which is uh, notwithstanding, <laughs> as 
the whole world of self-publishing where you do want to probably pay an editor, probably pay someone for the cover, uh, all of that stuff. Um, if you're working with a publishing house, small or large, money should flow to the writer. That's the mantra. Money should always flow to the writer. Just as I said earlier, you shouldn't be paying any agent because the money that the agent gets paid is going to actually come from the publisher. Um, money for the contracts with you and a publisher, all the money should be flowing to you. If they want you to pay $300 or $500 or $5,000 to get your book published, that's a scam publisher. That, that's the bottom line. There, there are some publishers, like if you're self-publishing it, that's a different story and you may spend that three or five or 5,000 or whatever, but if you're working with a publisher, money should flow to you, not from you. And it's Oh, and another outstanding. Sometimes you can bring an opportunity to the publisher and say, oh, I know the editor of this magazine, they have a, they're not going to be able to get the on a full page ad. I can't cover all the like, sort of costs of me. That sort of thing. You shouldn't have to pay for like the accounting or whatever unless you want to pay for a forensic accountant to audit their books. Um, but yeah. There's this new thing that I don't like, and I know people who are using it, but this is pet peeve of mine, it's called hybrid publishing, and it's not the same as being a hybrid author. A hybrid author means that you are publishing both self-publishing and traditional publishing, but a hybrid press is this thing where they like basically are publishing it for you, but you're also paying for it. I think it's also a scam, because it's like, um, we will do copy editing for you and, and distribution stuff for free, but if you want a developmental edit, you have to pay one of our editors to do it. And like part of the point of working with a publisher is that like they are investing in your book and your product, and that's how you know they're invested in selling your book and marketing your book. If they give you money, they want to earn it back. <laughs> so they're gonna spend the money and they're gonna put their their experts on it. When I say experts, I mean like an editor is an expert and like a marketing person is an expert, a cover designer is an expert. All right, well that's ended this part of the program. Um, we are gonna go next to the Q&A, but before we do that, I just wanted to point out another um, source that we have here at Pratt. Um, it's a database called Gale Courses, and they have all sorts of different courses you can take, but um, I'm just pointing out publishing and creative writing. They're actually teach, they're taught by actual professors, um, so you can get critiques from people in the profession. Um, and it's completely free. Um, basically, they are different um, like sessions throughout the year, and you take it for that amount of time. All right, so if anybody has any questions, raise your hand and I'll come to you. All right, I'm coming. Sorry, I, I really hate talking in public. Um, so the question that I have, I just put out my first uh, self-published book, and um, I don't know if I'm going to go that same route again just because like, the angry anarchist in me wants to self-publish, but the part of me that only makes 15000 a year realizes that I don't have funds. Um, but one of the things that I like to do is um, it's kind of hard for me to uh, pin down what the genre is that I write in because the stuff that I tend to like is, I don't even want to say cross-genre, it's more like genre questioning because 
you know, a good example might be um, a standard darkly by Philip K. Dick. Is it sci-fi? Maybe. Um, American Psycho, Christ Alice, is it thriller, horror? I don't know. Um, so any advice that you could give on getting that to a readership if you write something like that? Um, because these aren't books that you know, haven't sold historically. Um, how do you get that out? How do you um, attract a, a readership to that kind of work that's not really easy to pin down? If it's, if it's crossing a bunch of different um, or questioning, I mean, obviously, I, don't, I can't answer it for an exact work that I haven't read, but like for myself, um, like when we discussed marketing for it, like I identified the different parts of it that I thought would appeal to different people. So like there is a strong relationship course, so even though it's not romance, we wanted to market to some people in romance um, because there is like fake made up drugs and science, and it's science fiction um, because it has like strong characters and a first person point of view with a lot of interior dialogue that appeals to a lot of adult readers of YA. Um, so. Um, if this, if you are going to go the uh, publishing house group after this, then that's a talk that you want to have um, with your publisher. Um, and if you can sort of like pick the pieces out of there, say like what 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 genres are in question here, like and you know you talked about psycho, like uh, I think you said you know it's like oh American psycho, sorry, but like um, you know go through this. This has horror. This has thriller. This has you know. Do you have that press release or what have you? 
or something, giving some sort of statement about the book with the comparisons of, you know, we're fans of Greg Smalls and Paul Kiedek, you know, um, that sort of thing. Then we found a lot of times we do get reviews, we get favorable reviews, and we find the critter on the line inside of our press release because they don't really know what to say, but they like what we said about it. And, um, and that's okay. That's one case where favorism works fine. Um, but again, like we were talking about before with uh, changing the dimensions of a particular genre that works for something that's just sort of outside of the boundaries of genre altogether, um, just making it relatable in that way. I do want to make a very specific recommendation to you in that I just imbibed this the other day. There is a science fiction and fantasy author named Margaret Kiljoy. Uh, she's a queer trans woman who writes. Um, I've read her work. Cool, great. Well, you should look at some of the places she's published. Um, I was just learning, there's like a, I could get this wrong, since you've read her work, you may actually know the answer already. I think it's called AK Press, it's an anarchist press. And like they do all kinds of stuff there. Like this sort of place where you can find the author and sort of like follow after, follow them to their resources. So you see her, you know, look at her agent, look at the imprints she's in, that she published with, and sort of like talk to those people because that's where you can find great resources uh, specific to your needs. And look where those uh, books are being published to. Um, the reviews are being published and approach them for reviews or. What stores are talking about the books and approach them to talk your book? Any other questions? I should be able to present. No, Sarah. Yeah. Mike's with me, I'm sorry. Um, Sarah, to a comment you made earlier where um, when it comes time to go for the thing, shoot for the top of what you want. Let's say you do that, you get the rejection because you do it before you're ready. And is there an etiquette per se on, let's say you submit to an agent, the manuscript's definitely not ready, you get the rejection, you shop it, you fix it, you improve your draft. Is there an etiquette on eventually submitting to them again, or is that burned and done, you don't want to bump? It's, it's kind of worth it, unless they give you specific permission to come back. But sometimes they'll say that they left parts of it that they have to pass. You can always come back to them with a different project. So if it, you know, if you, if you shop that novel and it doesn't, uh, the, your dream agent doesn't take it, and you don't find any second, you know, on your second tier, maybe you put that one aside. And you write another, and you try them again. If if your goal is to work with that agent, but a lot of times there may be someone in your second tier who, who's also perfectly good, and you can always change later. You can you can change agents. So maybe maybe you know they weren't the right person for that first one. Um, part of it to go back to the dating analogy again, like it, it is a it is a connection, you know, on a personal level and also on a project level. So it might just be that wasn't the right project for them, uh, and something else might click another time. Say it's like you want to treat it like you're getting married, but no, you can always get divorced. And I think it also speaks to the the willingness to put a, put a project aside, which we didn't really cover today. But um, I always think of like N.K. Jemison because she put out the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, but then she had that duology that that after she found success, she was able to come back to. So. 
don't necessarily feel like you've you know, ruined your life work. It's like you can put it aside until you put more time to, to come back to it later. And sometimes that earlier work, it, you know, you, you level up and scale as you go. So it might be that something that was not quite working, not quite working you can figure out how to make it work. And then it can be your second project, which can be useful because because if you say sell a two book deal and the second book's timeline is way shorter, like if you had years to work on one and then suddenly you have like a year to work on the second one, you can always pull out that that earlier book and and fix it with those new skills that you have. Also, I'm saying this, you know, always maintain core relations if you can. Um, a lot of times the worst part on the other side of the table is we can't take everything that we like. We've just accepted too many similar products. We uh, would invest the time in getting your content to the place it needs to be, except for the other two editors both just got fired or one left or died or something. Now we don't have the time available to, to put into bringing your project to life or Maybe you know it could have been good for us, but a lot of times we will recommend other publishers if we think you're in the right to, to go that route, um, or we will push you in later. Like I said, you know, be ready to pitch something else if, if you um, are on our radar and um, we'd like to interact with you and you know think you have good ideas or some something of value. Um, so yeah, just don't blow up. Don't. Uh, <laughs> Hollywood, uh, specifically something like Photon Hall. How would that happen? 
And often what you should do at that point, uh, often what you should do at that point is turn around. You can take that offer and write to some agents and say, in the, in the subject line, say, uh, you know, offer from, from, you know, Penguin or whatever press it is, uh, seeking representation. And that'll make them look at your work faster, for sure. Um, so at that point, you can get an agent to do that, um, in theory. But it is harder to get in the door with those big presses if you don't have an agent. And also some agents will say, will read the work and they might not be interested because it just isn't their thing. Or they might be like, well, I would have submitted this to X, Y, and Z houses. A huge part of their job is like, no, which editors try to sell it to and get you a good deal. And so like, that's sort of another angle to it. Like, not all of them want an instant deal. So, well, here's what happened. I wrote this story, short story, like 20 years ago. Sent it to Harper's New York, and then all that stuff actually got. Harper's responded with like a signed rejection letter, which I heard is second level rejection, which means they were a little bit interested. And in that letter, they said, if you rewrite it, we'll be glad to look at it again. So I couldn't think of how to rewrite it. I was like, I, I, it's 20 pages. They want more. And I couldn't think. So I put it aside and I worked on other things for the past 20 years, um, which I do think will sell. But here's the thing. I, I sent this story back to Harper's that I fixed and made it more like novella length, which it seems like a killer. People don't want that length. And again, they wrote back, this is 20 years later, with a signed rejection and said, if you rewrite it. So what would you do? It's actually a really good sign. If they're, if they're asking you a revised and resubmit, usually means they genuinely are interested in it. It, uh, did they give you specific advice in the, they just said rewrite. Um, they wanted to see more about the character. Okay, so that doesn't necessarily mean more length, but they want more about the character. It means more character development within within that script, like probably within still the limit or whatever their length that they're looking for is. So at that point, if you're talking, I would, I would maybe find some people who you could uh, trade critiques with at that point and find someone who could work with you on, on where, you know, who could tell you that this is where, where you have an opportunity to, to build that character through their actions. And just think about what you can do to, to like show, that's where the show don't tell comes in sort of, is that you can use your characters in interesting ways to show something about them. Um, when they open the car door that, you know, do they open it gently or do they swing it, you know, do they just throw it open not looking first to see if there's a bike coming, you know? Like those are, those are things about character even though they seem like just opening a door. So you have all these moments built into what you already have where you can say something about the character and, that, and bring their arc along. And I just wanted to say that the, the re revise and resubmit is much more of an ask than because normally you would just reject and say, you know, thanks for thanks for sending this. Um, keep this in mind in the future. Bye. Like a really short rejection. But saying we'd love to see this again is a is a warm opening. Um, 
like I'm, I'm reading for an anthology that I'm putting together right now, and I think I've sent out maybe 65, um, in the last three weeks, 65 rejections, and one revised and resubmit. And that was because the story felt like it, um, it hit the tone right, it hit the theme right, I love the characters, but I thought the, the way that the arc landed just didn't quite do it. So I asked the writer, you know, if you'd like to consider seeing if you can make me happy with this arc, basically, you know, you're welcome to try again, um, but otherwise, you know, best of luck. Um, but that's, 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 a, that's a conversation, so you've been, as opposed to a, a rejection at the end of the sentence, you know, it doesn't keep going, so. I would, I would be hardened by that. Yeah, do it. Mm -hmm. Rewrite that, please. All right, everybody. Well, that's the end. As I said, there's some free things outside as well as some wonderful things that they're selling. So um, go on out there and mingle. Yeah, you're This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.